Welcome. This is Dr. Michio Kaku, Professor of Theoretical Physics at the City College and the Graduate Center of the City University of New York, and this is Exploration. Every week on Exploration, we discuss the fascinating world of science and its impact on society. And today, leading off, let me summarize some of the top stories in science and politics. Once again, the Delta virus dominates the headlines. Many people were hoping that we could see the light at the end of the tunnel. But now we realize there's a huge spike, a huge spike taking place among the unvaccinated. And the question is, is that going to endanger our march toward herd immunity? Right now, 50%, 50% of the U.S. population has been fully vaccinated, but you have to reach 70 to 80% before you can rip off the mask and declare that we've attained herd immunity. In other words, we're not there yet, and don't throw away your mask. Also, if you've been watching the Olympics, perhaps you noticed that body shape has a lot to do with whether you win or not. Now, of course, the determining factor is the practice dedication of the athletes themselves. But you can't help but notice that in certain races, uh, the person with a certain body type tends to dominate. So we'll talk about physics, the physics of body types, and whether or not you have an edge in winning an Olympic gold medal. And we'll say a few things about a physicist who just passed away this past week, uh, Dr. Steve Weinberg, winner of the Nobel Prize, the Dean of Particle Physics. He's a man who not only won the Nobel Prize, but he also, in some sense, proved Einstein wrong by proving that unification does not take place by uniting gravity with the electromagnetic force. But... Weinberg was also a prolific philosopher and writer as well. In fact, he wrote a chapter in a book, Dreams of a Final Theory, called Against Philosophy, denouncing what he thought was the spurious claims of philosophers. But the chapter itself was perhaps one of the most philosophical essays ever written about the relationship between physics and philosophy. And he's most famous for making a rather controversial statement. He said that, well, the more we learn about the universe, the more we realize that it is pointless. Well, that generated a hornlessness of controversy. In fact, books have books have been written trying to rebut or elaborate on that statement. Is the universe pointless? Well, we'll say a few things about that when we summarize the work of this great physicist, Steve Weinberg. And just when you thought you knew everything about global warming and the dangers it poses to society, now here's another one. There's something called the thermohaline cycle. It was first noticed by Benjamin Franklin on his numerous trips to the New World, and the Gulf Stream is nothing but one member of the thermohaline cycle, which is underwater. However, now scientists are beginning to realize that the thermohaline cycle, which preserves the stability of the ocean currents, is weakening. And what does that mean? 
What does that mean if all of a sudden the Gulf Stream shuts down? Europe could freeze over. The distribution of heat on the entire globe could be affected because the thermohaline cycle goes not just through the Gulf Stream, but it goes around the entire Earth. So what does it mean if there's a massive disruption of ocean currents, which in turn could accelerate what is called the tipping point? That is a very rapid change in the global climate of the planet Earth, tipped over by just one event. Well, we'll talk about this nightmare scenario in today's exploration. Well, let's just jump right into some of the top stories of the past week. The lead story, once again, concerns the Delta virus. The Delta virus is 60% more infectious than the Alpha variety, and the Alpha variety in turn is more infectious than the original coronavirus. And we now know that the viral load, the viral load that accompanies the Delta virus is 1,000 times larger than the viral load of previous versions of the virus. In other words, this is a really nasty virus. However, it's really a virus that affects the unvaccinated. It turns out that if you look at the chart of where infections are rising, we find that the hotspots are basically those areas that have a low rate of vaccination. So in other words, the vaccines that we have, they're not perfect. However, the vaccines that we do have, the Pfizer and the Moderna, for example, are good enough to prevent an upsurge in deaths and hospitalizations due to the Delta virus. So the Delta virus in the main is a threat to the unvaccinated. And so what does it mean? It means that we have to get the unvaccinated to be vaccinated. Now you have to realize that some people don't want to get vaccinated because they think that there's not enough data to support vaccinations. But now the data is in. We have data from literally tens of millions of people that have been vaccinated. And it shows clearly that yes, well, there are some side effects to the vaccine. But put that against what could happen if, you're, if you come down with the, the virus. You could go to the hospital, the emergency room, and perhaps even face death itself. Also, we have to reach what is called herd immunity. That requires 70 to 80% of the population to be fully vaccinated. And yet at the present time, only 50% of the U.S. population has been fully vaccinated. In other words, we have millions of people that are unvaccinated that could serve as a breeding ground for the next generation of viruses. Viruses mutate, and when they mutate, they evolve according to Darwinian theory, in other words, survival of the fittest. And the fittest means to be more infectious and more lethal. So as long as we have 50% of the U.S. population unvaccinated, that's a huge reservoir for mutations to proliferate. So in other words, just because you've been fully vaccinated doesn't mean that you can sit back and relax. It means there's a huge pool of unvaccinated people where the, vac where the virus is mutating. 
mutating to a new version that could be even more infectious and more lethal. And so just because you are unvaccinated and think that you're safe, you could be endangering the lives of people because a virus could develop that is immune to the previous vaccines that we have today. Now, the CDC has issued warnings, don't throw away your mask. Wear a mask, especially if you are indoors, because, of course, the wind blows the virus for the most part away. So if you're indoors, for God's sake, wear masks. And if you're unvaccinated, you should really think about the danger you pose, not just to yourself, but to the people of the world, because you are, in some sense, a breeding ground, a breeding ground for new versions of this virus. Also, if you've been watching the Olympics, have you noticed something? The winners, the people that achieve gold medals, of course, they are dedicated, hardworking. They've devoted a huge chunk of their hours to perfecting their skill. But you can't help but notice that the shape of the body seems to give some people an advantage on average. And again, that's not to denigrate the hard work of people who do win, but you have a boost. You have an extra advantage if you have certain characteristics. For example, you notice that runners, the people who win on long distance runs, seem to have longer legs, which simply translates to the fact that they go a longer distance for each stride. So if you are shorter, what advantages and disadvantages do you have? Well, if you're shorter, you probably realize you're not going to excel in basketball. And so, yeah, there are certain places where tall people and people with longer legs have an advantage. So if you're shorter or come from a nation with shorter people, like, for example, in Asia, what, what kinds of sports do you have that, that is competitive? And the answer is obvious. Gymnastics, diving, uh, even figure skating. Have you noticed that figure skaters tend to be shorter than average? And again, that's not to denigrate the hard work that goes into it, but figure skaters tend to be very short people. Of course, a TV camera focuses in on the body to the exclusion of the background, so you don't notice it. But when you actually meet figure skaters in person, you realize that they are actually very short people. And gymnasts. Gymnasts, of course, you don't want to have long legs if you're a gymnast. You want to have a stronger upper body and a lower body mass so that you can move your weight around. And so it turns out that shorter people uh, can be competitive in gymnastics. Also in weightlifting, you probably notice that it's not the length of the arm, it's not the length of the leg, but it's the cross-section of the arms. That's where strength comes in. The greater the cross-sectional area of the arm, the more arm, the more muscles that you have concentrated, and therefore the stronger you are. So in other words, when you look at strength, body strength, it is the cross-sectional area of the arm that gives you that extra advantage. In other words, weightlifters tend to be beefier than the average person. So in other words, yes, body shape 
has a factor to play in things like diving, in things like figure skating and gymnastics, but it's not deterministic. In the main, you have to have guts. You have to have determination. You have to have training to win the gold medal. But hey, it can't help if you get a boost from the laws of physics. I'd also like to say a, words, a few words about Steve Weinberg, a guest that I've had on my radio show. He was a giant in physics, Nobel Prize winner, and he proved Einstein was wrong in a very crucial area. Einstein believed that there could be a theory of everything, a simple equation that would unify the laws of physics. Well, in Einstein's time, there were only two forces that were known, the electromagnetic force, which includes light, and also the gravitational force, which holds the Earth together. The nuclear force was not known for much of Einstein's productive years, and so Einstein did not have a theory of the nuclear force. But he had a theory that would unite the electromagnetic force with the gravitational force. Well, unfortunately, that strategy was probably wrong. What Steve Weinberg showed was that it was the nuclear force, the weak nuclear force, that unified with electromagnetism. And so, yes, Einstein was onto something. There is, there is traces of a unified theory of all forces, as Einstein believed, but the way, the way in which unification proceeded was not the way Einstein envisioned. So once again, Einstein thought that light would be united with gravity, but nope. Steve Weinberg showed that light likes to be unified with the weak nuclear force, not the gravitational force. In fact, even today, even today we have not been able to get a theory that unifies the gravitational force that's accepted by all of physics. So you can't blame Einstein for getting it wrong. He was on the right track, but he had the wrong strategy toward unification. Well, Steve Weinberg also did believe in the larger dream that Einstein had, that there is a final theory, a theory of everything, the God Equation, which is the title of my latest book, The God Equation, The Quest for a Theory of Everything. And Weinberg argued as follows. Take a look at the ancient mariners and the ancient map makers. They knew there was a North Pole. They drew maps with the North Pole, with the missing chunk of the, of the map, with the North Pole there. And so the ancient mariners and the ancient map makers knew there was a North Pole. But they couldn't prove it. In fact, it would take hundreds of years before finally uh, humans reached the North Pole. And the North Pole, says Weinberg, is like the theory of everything. You know it's there. All the arrows point toward it. You know it's there, but hey, actually getting it is a lot of work. And that's where Weinberg left it. Dreams of a Final Theory, his book, points in the direction of the final theory the theory of everything, the God equation. But when we would attain it, of course, nobody knows. Well, what Weinberg's contribution was that he showed that light unifies with the weak nuclear force and 
the strong nuclear force can also be unified to create something called the standard model. The standard model is a very ugly theory, but it works. It does describe the nuclear force. And it is the dominant quantum force that governs the quantum universe. However, it does not include gravity. The standard model, which uh, Weinberg helped to create, is a theory of almost everything. It's a theory of quarks and leptons and Yang-Mills particles and, and photons, but it does not include gravity. If you have a theory of the nuclear force and gravity, that would be a theory of everything. That would be the God equation. Now, Weinberg was not only a giant in physics, he was also a philosopher and also a writer about the history of science and physics. In fact, he made a rather controversial statement in one of his books. One of his books was called The First Three Minutes, and he argued that science can actually map out the first three minutes of the history in our universe. But he had a controversial statement in that book, and that statement was that the more we learn about the universe, the more we realize that it is pointless. Well, as you can imagine, that created a storm of controversy. Philosophers and theologians jumped on it, and even some physicists began to feel uneasy about the fact that for all the work we put into physics, maybe, just maybe, is just pointless. Well, books have been written trying to rebut or uh, verify this basic position that he had, that the universe is basically pointless. Well, I should also point out that Einstein himself did not believe in that. Einstein himself believed that there was, in some sense, an order, a pattern to the entire universe itself. He believed in the universe of Spinoza, that the beginning of the universe showed that the universe was elegant, beautiful, simple, and above all, a simple theory that can explain the entire universe itself. And in fact, in that book, Dreams of a Final Theory, Weinberg has a chapter called Against Philosophy, where he tries to say that philosophy has been a dead end, that it's been basically useless. But if you read that chapter, Against Philosophy, you realize that it's perhaps the most eloquent and philosophical statement that has been written about the philosophy of the universe itself. And so that's the irony of that book. Well, just when you thought that you knew everything about global warming and the threat that it posed, here's yet another fact which will make you sleepless for many a night. And that is the ocean currents. Are we about to see a massive change in the ocean currents which could affect the entire global weather, affecting the economy and the destiny of humanity itself? Well, this story begins with Benjamin Franklin. Benjamin Franklin took many trips across the Atlantic, and on the boat, he had lots of time, he noticed something. He noticed there seemed to be a river inside the oceans. That was new. At that point, no one could believe that there was a river of water flowing in the Atlantic Ocean. 
we now know that it was the Gulf Stream. The Gulf Stream takes warm water from the Caribbean, transports it across the Atlantic until it reaches Northern Europe, especially England. Now, if you take a map of the Earth and you look at the temperatures on the Earth, you notice a paradox. That paradox is that England should be frozen over. If you look at where England is on the map of the Earth, you realize that it's parallel to northern Canada. That means England should be frozen over. It shouldn't be warm at all. In fact, northern Europe should be frozen over. And of course, if it ever did freeze over, that would have disastrous consequences for the world economy. Believe it or not, that's actually happened in the ancient past. We now realize that the Gulf Stream is part of a much larger network, an underwater river that goes around the entire Earth. Google it. It's called the Thermohaline Cycle. The Thermohaline Cycle, one leg of it, is the Gulf Stream, which takes warm water from the Caribbean, boosts it all the way past Greenland, all the way to the United Kingdom and Northern Europe, but it doesn't stop there. It circulates around the entire Earth's oceans. The Atlantic and the Pacific Oceans all have segments of the thermohaline cycle. So what's the danger? The danger is that Greenland is melting. Anyone who's actually lived in Greenland or visited Greenland knows that, yes, huge chunks of Greenland are thawing out. And what does that mean? That means that warm water, warm melted water, is leaving Greenland and it is bumping into the thermohaline cycle. So, in other words, there could be a hijacking of the thermohaline cycle as it moves from the Caribbean across the Atlantic Ocean to England and Northern Europe. If this sudden influx of fresh warm water from Greenland eventually disrupts the thermohaline cycle, that is the Gulf Stream, it could have massive consequences for, well, the world economy if Europe freezes over. And of course, the thermohaline cycle doesn't stop there. It keeps on going and wraps around the entire globe. So we have a problem. Well, most scientists believed that the thermohaline cycle was rather stable. We didn't lose sleep over it. Uh, because we thought that, well, it's been around for thousands, perhaps millions of years, and we don't see any drastic freezing over of England. Well, a new study was now done that's generating a lot of controversy. This new study shows that the thermohaline cycle is actually weakening, and this massive flow of warm water, which is vital to keep Northern Europe warm, is weakening and if it ever stops if the sudden influx of cold uh, <clears throat> and the danger is that if it ever stops it could have massive consequences for the climate of the entire earth it would mean that warm water would not be distributed evenly as it is now Areas that are cold today could warm up, and areas that are warm today, like Europe, could freeze over. 
And this could have, of course, enormous consequences for the world economy, enormous consequences for the politics of the earth, especially if Europe freezes over. And of course, it will eventually affect the United States as well. So this new study, this new study which just came out this week, points to the fact that this is an area, a new area of concern. It's a new area that will make many sleepless nights for meteorologists who thought they understood the long-term dangers. Nope, here's another one to worry about. The collapse of the warm water ocean currents. A collapse which could immediately affect not just Europe, but the rest of the planet Earth itself. That's something to really keep in mind as you think about the dangers caused by global warming. We should also point out that this week marks the anniversary of the bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Of course, the whole world was startled when the power of the nuclear forest was unleashed on a civilian population, causing the deaths of hundreds of thousands of individuals and serving as a warning, a warning which could happen if one day things spiral out of control and nuclear weapons are once again used in anger. Well, what lesson does that have for today? Well, one lesson that we can incorporate into our thinking is the fact that the Outer Space Treaty of 1967 is woefully out of date. And here we are, talking about the exploration of outer space, while we still have stockpiles of nuclear weapons that could seriously disrupt the ecology and, of course, the politics and the lives of millions of people on the planet Earth. The Outer Space Treaty of 1967 said a few things which are very important. First, that outer space should not have nuclear weapons. And second of all, that no nation can claim a celestial body as its own. Well, that sounds so quaint today because we have so many advanced nuclear weapons that are capable of being used on a moment's notice. Even if you ban them from outer space, what's to prevent them from being used in the heat of a nuclear confrontation? So, many people think that there should be a revised version of the Outer Space Treaty of 67. First of all, to prevent non-nuclear weapons from proliferating in outer space, kinetic energy weapons, laser-guided weapons, hypersonic weapons, you name it, the military has been looking at different forms of nuclear and non-nuclear weapons. And second of all, now even billionaires like Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos can claim that one day they will put a flag on the moon and perhaps claim that celestial body for their own private gain. Who would have thought back in 1967 that an individual would have enough resources and talent and scientific know-how to claim a celestial body as his own private property? Well, we are in the space age now, and it's time that we revise the Outer Space Treaty of 1967 to conform with the advanced technology that we have today, where not only can individuals, in principle, claim celestial bodies, but also nuclear weapons can be designed for specific purposes, nuclear weapons that are not used in a nuclear war until, at the very last minute, it's too late, 
and then they unleash the devastation on the world itself. We need a new outer space treaty. Well, I'm afraid that's it for the first part of exploration. Once again, this is Dr. Michio Kaku. Stay tuned for the second half when we talk about a green environment. What can you do to make sure that these horrible scenarios are not seen in our lifetime? So once again, this is Dr. Michio Kaku for exploration. Stay tuned when we talk to Lori Bongiorno, author of Green, Greener, and Greenest. Welcome back to Exploration. Once again, this is Dr. Michio Kaku. And if you want to know more about exploration, go to my website, mkaku.org, M-K-A-K-U.org, and find out about my latest New York Times bestseller, The God Equation, The Quest for a Theory of Everything. But in the second half of Exploration, we're going to talk about what you what you can do to fight global warming. Now, on Exploration, we've done a number of programs about global warming, about forest fires, about droughts, about hurricanes, about all the changes in the weather, not all of them directly related to global warming, but on the average, on the average, all the arrows point in the direction that the Earth is heating up and human activity is helping to drive global warming. But, well, what can you do as an individual? Well, of course, you can activate yourself politically, but there's also things you can do as an individual, as a consumer. With us today is Lori Bongiorno, author of a book, Green, Greener, and Greenest, about how you, as an individual, can change your lifestyle so that the earth can be saved. And in fact, if millions of people were to follow the book, we would have, of course, a tremendous, powerful political force as well. So once again, our special guest today is Lori Bongiorno, author of the book Greener, Greener and Greenest. The first question for you, Lori, is how did you first get interested in environmental issues and science? Well, I was a business reporter for many years and um, got interested in health reporting after my husband died after a two-year battle with melanoma. I also had two young children, one of whom had severe um, and extensive food allergies. So I started to become interested in health, and I felt like preventing major problems was the best way to go. And so I decided to write about health and started writing about health And um, subsequently, a friend asked me to write for her environmental health newsletter. And I I wasn't interested at first because I didn't really consider myself an environmentalist. Um, But when she explained the connection between health and the environment, I decided to give it a try. And then I got really interested in the connection between personal health and the health of the planet. 
Okay, and why write the book, Green, Greener, and Greenest? I wrote the book because I believe that most people want to make positive changes that benefit the environment, but I found that a lot of people were confused or overwhelmed or didn't know where to start. So I wanted to write the book so that I could show people the whole spectrum of green options out there because there isn't just one right way to be green. Um, and anything you can do, small or large, is worthwhile. And I basically wanted to make it um, less overwhelming for people. Okay, well, let's just jump right into some of the topics because uh, one thing good about your book is that it's very specific and very much related to people's lifestyles. Okay, food and beverages. How do we go from green, greener to greenest? First of all, what is the difference between green, greener, and greenest? And how does that apply to food and beverages? Okay, well, the difference between green, greener, and greenest is green tips are easy and inexpensive. Greener tips are for those who want to spend or who have the interest, the time, or the budget to go a little bit deeper into an issue. And greenest suggestions are for those who are able to fully take on an issue. And lots of times those greenest suggestions are for um, someone who, you know, involve getting more active in a broader way. And I guess the greenest category would also call call for political action as exactly. well, right? Exactly. In many cases, it's for broader community act- action or political action. Okay. Well, let's just jump right into the contents of your book. First of all, what we eat and what we drink. How does this stack up to green, greener, and greenest? Well, I mean, there's so many different um, categories of food, but we can do we can do produce because that's something that a lot of people care about. Um, so one thing that people can do if they're worried about a green thing that you can do if you're worried about pesticide residues is eat a wide variety of produce to get all the nutrients you need and to protect yourself from exposure to the same pesticides. A greener thing that you can do is to buy organic versions of the most contaminated produce. And um, some of the, the environmental working group has a list of the you know top 12 most contaminated um, fruits and vegetables and the um, the least contaminated, um, and some of the most contaminated are things like peaches and apples and strawberries, and some of the least contaminated are things like spinach, pears, and cucumbers. And uh, yeah, and then greenest, and, and another thing that you can do that's greener is to buy local whenever possible. Going to your local farmer's market cuts down on um, fuel to ship um, food across the country, and, um, and you're getting tastier and um, and healthier, in some cases, food than you do at the supermarket. Greenest is to, um, you know, grow your own produce or join a community-supported agriculture program where you can, um, at the beginning of a growing season, buy a share of, um, of a local farmer's harvest, pick it up each week. Okay. And let's be specific. Uh, you have a section on fish and seafoods. Uh, everyone wants to get omega-3 fatty acids for their health benefits, but also seafood contains mercury left over from the burning of coal. Coal Coal-fired plants produce an enormous amount of mercury, which then lands back in the oceans as acid rain, which then gets into salmon and whatever, and then gets into your body. So what are your thoughts about fish and seafood? Well, you know, one of the easiest things you can do is to get a fish list or a fish card and bring it with you next time you go to the fish store or you go go to the supermarket. But some, some tips that I have in here are in green, green, or greenest is green. Um, when eating canned tuna, buy chunk light, um, not albacore tuna. 
which has three times the amounts of mercury as light tuna. So that's one way to do something um, that, that's fairly easy. Um, a greener thing that you can do is um, choose wild and canned Alaskan salmon over farm-raised salmon. Farm-raised salmon tends to be fattier, um, and some of their feet, which is where a lot of these toxins like PCBs concentrate. And um, and so and also the feed is sometimes contaminated with some of those chemicals. A greenest thing that you can do is, you know, this is a place to try and get active. Um, urge your elected officials to support legislation that's aimed at reducing mercury in the environment so that we can eat all kinds of fish and not have to worry about it. Okay, and moving on to meat and dairy products. Uh, of course, we're all concerned about animal fat, which tends to clog up our bodies and our arteries. But we also have to worry about antibiotics, and we have to also worry about the other things in um, meat and uh, dairy. Uh, any thoughts? Yes. I mean, one of the things that you can do that's really easy, and this is a green suggestion in the book, um, is minimize exposure to fat. This is where many, uh, you know, for, for obvious reasons, but also because it contains, that's where a lot of the toxic chemicals such as dioxins concentrate. So if you either buy low-fat dairy products or you buy low-fat meat or cut off the fat from the meat when you're cooking it, these are ways that you could cut down on fat and, um, and, and it's healthier. Um, greener things um, in terms of um, meat would be, you know, to buy organic when possible. It's your best bet that animals weren't raised with antibiotics or added hormones or, you know, many other harmful practices. Um, with dairy and meat and, and red meat, grass-fed is another thing to look for. Um, it's leaner, um, so you have to cook it differently, but um, cows were not meant to be raised on, on grain. They were meant to be raised on grass, and, and grass-fed cows' um, meat and, and milk is actually healthier for you. It has some beneficial fats that are actually good for you. A greenest thing would be to eliminate meat and, and, um, and or, you know, well, not dairy, eliminate meat entirely from your diet. Um, and, you know, but there are, you know, that's the greenest thing. There are, you know, a green thing would be to eat less meat. Okay. So you don't have to go straight to that. Now, <clears throat> we have this perpetual problem that even though things that are labeled organic may not be organic. I mean, what does it mean if it says organic? Maybe it's a scam. Any thoughts about what it means when a product says organic? I mean, how can you be sure? Well, it really depends on the product. In food, if it has the USDA certified organic stamp of approval on it, it means that um, that. It, that the food, like the fruits or vegetables, or the, it means that there were very strict standards that were met, and that a third party verified it. So, if you see an organic label with the USDA seal of approval, um, you know you can be pretty sure that you're getting an organic product when it comes to food. And what about the perpetual problem of plastic versus paper wrappers in bags? <laughs> that is an age-old question. Um, the, the, it really depends. I mean, basically, the answer is um, is is to use cloth whenever possible. Um, and but if that's not possible, then it, if you're near a body of water and you can get recycled paper bags, you should choose that. If you are not near a body of water, because you don't want the plastic bags to end up in the ocean and harm wildlife. If you are not near a body of water or you can't or the bags are not made from recycled paper, post consumer recycled paper, then you're better off choosing plastic. But you should also think about what you're actually doing with these bags when you're done with them. I mean, paper can be recycled. 
plastic. I use plastic bags. I reuse them as garbage liners so I don't have to buy um, garbage liners. So, so think about what you do with it when you're done with them as well. And can you be sure that the plastic is biodegradable? No. I mean, you could be pretty sure that it's not biodegradable and it's going to be in a landfill for a long time. So you don't, you know, that's why you want to try and recycle. I mean, in New York City, you're going to be able to bring plastic bags to stores and get them recycled, or you can, you can reuse them. Okay. Well, now moving on to the home, personal care products, uh, babies and children. One problem is diapers. Uh, some people complain that, first of all, diapers are extremely filthy and contain tremendous amount of germs, and we generate enormous quantities of pampers for anyone who's ever changed a diaper before. What are your thoughts? Well, I mean, I think a, a big question that people think about in terms of diapers is whether or not to use um, reusable or disposable. And one of the things I found in doing this research is that it, it doesn't really make a huge difference one way or the other. They both take up resources. They both have pros and cons. And the conclusion I came to is that, you know, people should, um, you know, people should actually think about using diapers and think about, you know, their needs and their lifestyles and do what's best for them. But to also, um, if you live in a place where landfill issue isn't, is a, where landfill is an issue, then maybe, and you can use dispose, uh, use, um, excuse me, if you can use reusable, great. Um, but if you're, or if you're in a place where water quality is an issue, then using disposable is actually better. Something like diapers, I mean, they're a necessity, although there is one of the greenest suggestions in the book is that there is this new thing called the elimination communication method that is for, you know, gaining some momentum in the United States. And the basic gist is that there are certain signals that a baby makes in advance of having to go, and so parents can actually start potty training a baby pretty early on. I mean, that seems to me... um, not something that many people can do, but that's pretty much the only way to really cut down on, on diaper use. Okay, and speaking about home care products, the average person goes through an enormous amount of chemicals. Uh, you mentioned, for example, in your book, hair dye, uh, nail polish, deodorants and antiperspirants, uh, sun protection. We go through an enormous amount of chemicals that go right down the drain. Uh, what are your thoughts about minimizing our imprint on the environment? Yes, and on our personal health. I mean, most people use about nine different personal care products a day, encountering a combined average of 126 different ingredients. Um, one of the easiest things that you can do is to, to protect your own health and the health of the planet is to use fewer products. That's a green suggestion in the book. Um, you'll, you know, that's, that's one thing you can do. I mean, other things that you can do are trying to, trying to stay away from the most um, harmful chemicals. Like? Um, well, one thing um, that I guess is pretty hard to find, um, well, I mean, petroleum byproducts, there is a chemical called 1,4-dioxane um, that has been getting a lot of attention lately because it can be contaminated with carcinogenic impurities. The problem is that it's really hard to know from reading the labels what it's in, and so one thing that I tell people to do is go to the Environmental Working Group's Cosmetics Database, which is www.cosmeticsdatabase.com, and you could just type in the name of a product or type in the name of a chemical. It's really very user-friendly, and it can help you learn a lot about what you're using on your body. Um, a greenest thing that people could do is 
you know, either buy from companies that are starting to make changes. And some of those companies are Aubrey Organics, Jason Natural Products, Burt's Bees, or try to get more active um, politically. Okay. And <clears throat> speaking about beverages, uh, a lot of people drink bottled water. Uh, first of all, is there any advantage at all to drinking bottled water? And second of all, uh, there are a lot of products that guarantee filtering of water, but are they just bunk, or can they really filter water? Okay. Well, first things first, um, there is no um, proof that bottled water is any better than tap water. In fact, if you, um, you the NRDC did a study that showed that 25% of bottled water is just tap water, and it's, sometimes it's further treated and sometimes it's not. I mean, experts agree that um, drinking tap water is the way to go for, for many reasons. Um, also, it's, it's, it's very expensive um, for a lot of people. Sure. Um, now, in terms of water filters, I mean, the best way to know, I mean, first of all, all water fil- the best way to figure out which, wa- which water filter you need is to find out what's in your water. And everyone gets a drinking water, reply, drinking water report called the Drinking Water Quality Report in July, around July, um, first of every year. And that can tell you what's in your water. Or you can get your water tested. But once you know what's in your water, then you know what you have to get rid of. Um, and there are three different kinds of filters, carbon filters, distillers, and reverse osmosis. And they each, they each um, get rid of different things. The one thing you want to look for in all filters is to make sure it's NSF certified, which is um, an independent nonprofit that certifies um, food products and water-related products. So just make sure it's NSF certified and make sure you change the filter according to manufacturer's directions. Okay. uh, Let me ask you a question that is not addressed in this book, but uh, people have asked me. And that is, if you analyze your blood for chemicals like lead and mercury, of course, you can go to a scientific laboratory and find out exactly what kind of junk is inside your blood. But that's not for the average person. Um, How would an average person be able to find out how much lead, mercury, and different kind of pollutants are in their body by analyzing the blood? And can you remove them? Any thoughts? Wow, that's a good question. Um, lead, I mean, most kids under the age of six get, get can lead tests at the doctor's office pretty regularly. Um, and I, I think, you know, that's fairly easily measured in the blood, and, and people have access to that. Mercury, the same thing. I mean, people, you can go to your doctor and ask for a blood test. You can also go to the Sierra Club, and Greenpeace right now have a kit that they're selling for, I think it's $25, and you can snip a piece of your hair off and send it to their lab, and they'll tell you how much mercury you have in your body. Um, it depends on what the chemical is in terms of what you can do about it. Um, I mean, the, in the book, I mean, I say continually, like, prevent, prevention is your best bet. Um, a, a chemical like bisphenol A, which is getting a lot of tension these days because of um, plastic baby bottles, it, can, it has estrogenic properties, and it can leach out of, out of some plastic baby bottles and bottles in general, um, you know, that doesn't, ha- doesn't, that doesn't stay in your body for a long time, but we're continually exposed to it. Um, other things stay in your body for a really long time. There's, you know, there's really nothing you can do once, once it gets there. So, you know, it just depends on, you know, what your priorities are and, and what you're trying to accomplish. But, I mean, I think the first step, if you really want to know what's going on, is going to your doctor and talking to your doctor. 
And any thoughts about chelating? Uh, some people have used that to eliminate certain, let's say, metals in their body. We use it in a chemistry laboratory all the time, but what about how safe it is for humans? Um, any thoughts? I haven't really looked into that. Right. Okay, moving on. Home building and improvement. Of course, in metropolitan areas, very few people build their own house from ground up. However, all of us have to worry about formaldehyde in the walls, molds, and stuff like that. So let's talk about uh, home building. First of all, formaldehyde and other chemicals that build up in the walls. Some people say that if you make a house environmentally friendly so that you seal off the house to conserve heat, you build up formaldehyde as a consequence, and that's not good for you. But what are your thoughts? Well, that is very true. Um, that I mean, if you, you know, all these newer constructions should have a really great ventilation system so that you're getting clean air into your home or apartment um, continually. Um, so ventilation plays a huge part. Um, and preventing some of these chemicals from getting into your house in the first place is another great thing to do. Um, there are more and more you know, formaldehyde-free products or, and low VOC products on the market. Um, and there are a lot of um, great stores that you can go to to learn more about them and great resources um, that I can tell you about right now. Um, I would say, um, you know, building green, um, well, that's not quite so. That, I mean, that, for consumers, buildinggreen.com is a good resource, although some of the better parts of the site are pretty expensive. But um, the Green Building Resource um, Center, that's Global Greens, www.globalgreen.org, has a lot of information for consumers. Um, the U.S. Green Building Council, which... Many people will have heard of in terms of lead, um, lead program, lead lead houses or lead buildings. There's a lot of that in the news. They now have a consumer um, a consumer page website called greenhomeguide.greenhomeguide.org, um, which has a lot of resources. But um, but these days, you know, you can just go to an environmental. You can even go to Home Depot, which has a whole. Um, assortment of green products and and ask for you know for for low off gas excuse me low off gassing products like low voc paints which are available from many of the major um paint suppliers and um you know even buy wood that you know doesn't off gas you just you just have to ask questions like that okay now let's do the big one and that is energy and carbon everyone's worried about that and people would like to contribute to an environmental movement to reduce our carbon footprint, as we sometimes say. But as you mentioned in your book, the average U.S. household emits 22,000 pounds of carbon dioxide a year. So it seems as if each house is a, a gigantic wellspring of uh, greenhouse gases. So what do we do about it? Well, you know, try to use less less energy. is like, And when you do replace... Um, Appliances and other things in your in your apartment or house make them as energy efficient as possible. In green, green, or greenest, I talk about some of the easy things that you can do to make a big difference. Um, installing an energy store thermostat will save you 500 pounds of carbon dioxide a year. Switching to low flow shower heads doesn't just save you water; it also saves your energy about 700 pounds a year. If you were to use Five compact fluorescent light bulbs in your house, 300 pounds of, of carbon dioxide a year would be saved um, from you know, being emitted into the atmosphere. 
um, sealing up leaks around doors. Those are all things that people can do. Um, those are those are four things that people can do that are, are relatively easy, relatively inexpensive, and will make a pretty big difference. And let's talk about those light bulbs. How good are the new light bulbs compared to the old light bulbs? Well, it depends. I mean, it just depends on you know what your what your priorities are. And I mean, I have a few of them. I and they're fine. Um, and I don't I don't put them all over my house. I I've picked a few different places where where they're you know I use them in my closets. I use them in some hallways. Um, and as and and as incandescents go out, I am you know thinking about how to how to replace them. But you know they are getting better. Um, one thing that consumers I mean, and, and Environmental Defense has a great light bulb guide that you can go to on their website, which I don't know offhand. Um, the other thing for consumers to know is buy one that's Energy Star um, certified, because that's going to make that's that's a guarantee that the bulb will last for a certain amount of time, that the quality of light will be good, and that when you turn it on, it will come on immediately, and there won't be that lag. Um, people worry about one of the questions I always get is how to dispose of them. That's tricky. Um, household hazardous waste um, is, is how you're supposed you're supposed to just um, dispose of them with with HHW. But one of the things that you can do is go on to earth911.org and see if there's a drop-off center near you. Um, if you if you can't find one near you, you should you should um, seal them in two different Ziploc bags before you throw them out. But I think that it's going to get easier for consumers to. Um, dispose of CFLs. I think they're, you're gonna, we're going to start to see some in-store um, disposal options. I mean, the other day I was in Whole Foods and I saw, you know, they they are they're taking batteries now. I think it's just a matter of time before people can start um, dropping off their old um, light bulbs as well. Okay. Well, again, you mentioned that the average U.S. household emits 22,000 pounds of carbon dioxide a year. You mentioned how we can reduce it rather easily by maybe uh, two, 3,000, but we're still up to 20,000 pounds of carbon dioxide a year. Let me ask the big question. What would it take to go solar in a house and remove yourself from the electric grid totally? Well, I'm not an expert on solar, but what I, what I think it's, it's sort of out of the reach for, for many people. Um, there's all kinds of new technologies being worked on, which, which, might make the, which, which is said to make the price that the price will be coming down. Um, the, the other thing you can do that without slapping solar panels on your house is you can, and a lot of people in you know in cities don't really have control over that anyway. Is you can you can switch to a green pricing program and you can you can buy renewable energies through your um, utility or through an alternative utility, and um, that's like a little bit more money each month. Probably, I mean, it depends on where you live, but um, I mean that's that's a way to to support renewables without having to break the bank. And the one thing you should do there is go to um, Green E. Um, it's a green power certification program, and that will tell you which programs are good and which are not so good. It's www.green-or-e.org. So I mean that's that's within the realm of you know, that's much more reachable for most consumers than slapping solar panels on their house. And I understand that you want to say something more about solar. Well, I wanted to just say that um, that solar water heating is an option that's becoming more accessible um, depending upon where you live. It's a little more expensive, um, but it's it's a way to um, 
to get involved in solar that that that, that is easier for for most people right now. Okay, moving on. Uh, apparel and furnishings and cleaning. First of all, people do go to the dry cleaners, which use quite a bit of toxic chemicals to clean your clothes. But uh, any thoughts in this direction? Well, in terms of dry cleaning, um, yes, perk is the is the thing that you want to avoid, and many and eighty percent of the dry cleaners use perk. That's the solvent. Um, there are different things that you can do. Um, one is you can, if you do have to dry clean your clothing and you don't have an alternative to perk, um, what you can do is you could just air out your clothes before you put them in your closet or if you're driving home, um, take them out of the plastic and plastic and leave your windows open. Um, there are also some alternatives to traditional dry cleaning, um, and two of them are considered environmentally preferable by the EPA. One is called carbon dioxide cleaning, and the other is called wet cleaning. Mm-hmm. Wet cleaning uses water and non-toxic soap to clean clothes, but it's it's maybe not best for um, for all types of co- clothes. What I hear is that you want to use them on items that you would consider hand-washing at home, such as silks or linen. Well, I'm afraid that's it for exploration. Once again, our special guest was... Lori Borgiorno, and her book is called Green, Greener, and Greenest. And this is Dr. Michio Kaku. Find out more about exploration by going to my website, mkaku.org, M-K-A-K-U.org. My latest New York Times bestseller is called The God Equation, The Quest for a Theory of Everything. So find out what I'm up to by going to my website, mkaku.org. Good day.